0: This is episode three of The Order of Death. If you'd like to start at the beginning, just back up a little bit in the feed and start with episode one A Driveway in Denver.
1: If you're just joining us, my guest is Thomas Martinez, and he was a former member of of the Klan and of the National Alliance. He became affiliated with a a group called The Order. That was the group that was responsible for the Murder of Talk show host, Alan Berg. Why was it so important within the ideology of this group to keep it absolutely secret, totally underground?
2: Because the crimes that they were going to commit uh, were going to finance the upper level, the groups that were out in the public, like the Klan, the National Alliance, The white Aryan resistance, these hate movements, they were to finance the leaders so the leaders could get the propaganda out to the people from their soldiers who were open. And if the leaders saw a good recruit who they believed in the ideology of terrorism, then he would send them down to the order.
0: This is former National Alliance and KKK member Thomas Martinez. He's talking to Terry Gross on Fresh Air back in 1988. He was there to promote a book he wrote about his experience with these white supremacist organizations.
1: Part of the goal of the order was to, as you said, assassinate certain leaders, um, create havoc in the country. (laughs) Um, Weapons were needed for those plans. What kind of arsenal did the order actually have, and, and how did they get the weapons that they had?
2: When I cooperated with the government... Of course, I knew quite a bit, but there was a lot of things I didn't know. And the government then started putting in informants, and the government had over 300 FBI, U.S. Marshals, and Secret Service investigating this organization. They also found out in North Carolina there was an inside man in one of the military bases of our own government who was actually stealing weapons out of one of our military bases and selling them to the order. They also had their own store, which they opened up as a front, a supply store, that they were buying guns and weapons and supplies. And basically, it was not a store to sell to the public. It was for the organization.
3: We mentioned Martinez briefly in the previous episode. Martinez was not involved in Berg's murder or the armored car heist, but he was being recruited for the Silent Brotherhood
1: and a friend of Bob Matthews.
0: Terry asked Martinez about his involvement with Bob Matthews and the Order.
1: Now, let me see if I have this straight. You left the National Alliance in around 83, And you didn't want to be a member of these extremist neo-Nazi groups anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you were still good friends with Bob Matthews, the guy who founded the order. Right. You didn't know that the order existed, but you knew that he was committing robberies and counterfeiting money. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to involve you Mm -hmm. in that process. Mm -hmm. So what did you, how did he approach you? What did he tell you he wanted you for?
2: Well, Matthews came around at Christmas time with a bag full of money asking me to help pass this bank money that a man by the name of Carlos robbed the bank for the movement. I told him I didn't want nothing to do with it. It was like uh, the next day, you know, come on, buddy, and all this stuff, I'll help you with your roof. And he gave me $500 to have a roofer just come and put plywood up there and put hot tar to preserve the wood till I can get enough. And he conned me into it with money, strictly money. And, uh, Next thing you know, it he's told me that there was a counterfeit operation. He could help me out. And I asked him, what's the counterfeit operation's purpose for? And the counterfeiting, he said, was to try to get people like myself and others who are willing to move out of the cities and buy some businesses, and that'll be it. And to be honest with you, as I sit here today, you know, it was four years ago this happened. It was very stupid, very weak, and gullible. You know, when I look back, the average person probably wouldn't have done what I did. At least I don't think they would have. But let me tell you something, when somebody's got thousands, and I'm talking thousands of dollars on a table looking at you in the face, you become very greedy, and you don't think about ever getting caught.
1: So you decided to pass the counterfeit money so that you can make some profit off of it, too. Yes,
2: yes.
3: Martinez spends this part of the interview talking around things, dodging Terry's question, downplaying his involvement with the group, and their crimes. And what he's not talking about specifically is what he got caught doing and what happened to him afterwards. Because his actions would help lead to the end of the Order. In this episode, we'll chronicle the last days of the Order and of Bob Matthews, and what happened to the other major players involved.
0: This is The Order of Death. I'm Josh Madison.
3: And I'm Shannon Geis. The FBI is-
0: Let's start by going back to right after Allenberg's murder. After laying low in a hotel out on I-70 for a few days, David Lane, Bob Matthews, and Bruce Pierce went their separate ways, with most of them heading home, except for Lane.
4: After Allen's assassination here in Denver, the next thing that David Lane did was hop in his car and take a load of counterfeit money that had been produced by the gang back to Philadelphia and asked uh, Tom Martinez to pass it around. And, Send, keep some of the proceeds for himself, but then send the rest of the real money back to, uh, back to the gang.
3: This is former Rocky Mountain news reporter and current Denver City Councilman, Kevin Flynn. He wrote a book about Bob Matthews and the order called The Silent Brotherhood. Passing counterfeit money in person is labor intensive and pretty high risk. In order to mitigate some of that risk, David Lane had given Martinez some specific instructions. Don't pass any bills near where you live and never go to the same place twice.
4: That's one of the ways they were trying to fund themselves, uh, the counterfeiting $20 bills. Take a fake 20 in, buy a buy a pack of gum, grab the real change, and then take your cut and send the rest back. David had told uh, Tom uh, not to pass it in the neighborhood where you'd be recognized, and but he ended up doing just that. After he had passed a, a counterfeit 20 in one of the local businesses, the owner realized it was counterfeit. And so the next time Tom came into the store, the owner called him out and said, hey, you're the guy that gave me this fake 20. And he kind of denied it. And so uh, the owner, I believe, called the secret. The Secret Service ended up getting involved. And, they, and uh, Tom came back to the store with a real 20 trying to make it good. And, but, uh, you know, the, the damage had been done already. And so the FBI worked on, on Tom, and he was facing some, he was facing some prison time.
0: During their questioning, it didn't take long for the authorities to figure out that Martinez knew about a lot more than just some two-bit counterfeiting operation. They realized he was connected in some way to these crimes they'd been seeing popping up all over the West. They offered him protection if he would talk, but Martinez refused this offer. So Martinez was let out on bail, but he was terrified.
2: I was into it up to my neck. I mean, I couldn't go to the federal agencies because here, what do I do? Walk in and say, oh, yeah, I was once a KKK member, a neo Nazi. Yeah, I helped pass uh, bank money. Oh, yeah, I let this guy who robbed the bank stay at my house. Oh, yeah, another thing. You know, I was just guilty as sin. I, I mean, I was just as bad as they were. And uh, I was in the, in the middle. I didn't know what to do. But when they start talking, to about what they wanted to do and their plans of doing it, it scared the hell out of me. I mean, these guys were talking about polluting our water supply system, New York, putting cyanide in it. They had it. Talking about killing Henry Kissinger, and they had over $4 million of unmarked money. They were talking about killing a prominent attorney in uh, Alabama by the name of Mars Dees. Talking about blowing up the Boundary Dam in Washington State, which they had the blueprints. Uh, Los Angeles power supply company—they're going to blow up to create animosity in the city of rioting, hoping if they shut the power down at that night at certain date, blacks would start looting the stores, and this would cause news of showing how the blacks really are in the white eye, white people's eyes. And this was what their sabotage was going to be—blowing up uh, rare uh, railroad road supplies, air air transportation. It was scary as hell.
1: So your friend who founded the order told you all of this?
2: Oh yeah. Because he wanted me to go underground. It was... was, I mean...
1: He was afraid that you were going to be swayed one way or another. Either you'd go underground or or you'd talk. I was already
2: arrested for counterfeiting. You're you're talking uh, three counts at the same store.
3: So while Martinez was sweating about whether he was going to go underground or inform on the order, Robert Matthews and some of the other men robbed the Brink's armored car. And if you'll remember from the last episode... Matthews dropped his gun in the back of the car while throwing out bags of cash. Here's Kevin Flynn.
4: And it was a gun that had been acquired by one of the gang members a couple years earlier, before any of this involvement. And he had bought it under his real name. And so when the FBI ran the uh, the background on this particular gun, ran the numbers, came back with the with the name of the person who had bought it. And they started looking into this guy. And that's what gave them all the known associates and really put them on the trail. I call that... Gun, the dropping of that gun in the back of the Brinks truck by Bob Matthews, that's the keyhole through which every piece of evidence
0: came. After the Brinks job, Matthews gave all of the members of the order $10,000 as a salary of sorts, including Martinez. He was using it as a way to kind of entice Martinez into joining the gang. But Martinez put things together and he knew where Matthews got that $10,000. And that worried him because at that point, Matthews had already had a member of the order killed, who he felt couldn't be trusted. Someone within their circle
4: was talking. He, was, he would get drunk and he would talk in the local bars up in, in the, up in the Hayden Lake area. And they said, we can't put up with this. So they took him out in the woods and they killed him. And the guy, the, the two people who killed him, are in prison and they will probably never get out.
3: Matthews had Martinez come out to Portland, Oregon. He wanted Martinez to do a voice stress analysis test to prove that he wasn't lying about anything. During this time, Matthews also tried to convince Martinez to go underground and run away from the feds. Martinez managed to talk his way out of taking the test and going underground, and he left Matthews in Portland to go back to his trial in Philadelphia.
0: But right before his trial started, his lawyer confronted him about what the FBI had on him. His lawyer said that the FBI could tie him to significant criminal activity out west, including robbery of an armored car. Martinez realized that he couldn't do this. He was a racist, sure, but he wasn't a true believer. He wasn't ready to put his life on the line or go to prison for this cause. He decided to talk to the FBI about what he knew. Here's Terry Gross again.
1: Thomas Martinez is my guest, and we were just about to get into your decision to inform for the FBI. Uh, Why did did you go that way instead of going underground?
2: Well... October the 1st, the day of my trial, in front of one of the toughest judges in Philadelphia, Judge Van Artstown, uh, I knew right now that the Boundary Dam and another dam was gonna go up. Besides that, the biggest heist in the world was gonna be pulled off. That was 30 to $50 million. That money was gonna be stolen out of San Francisco. There was a clean shipment of money from Hawaii apparently coming in. They would've got away with it because the, the order had two managers inside Brinks who had the blueprints of the building. 30 to $50 million in the hands of Bob Matthews and his followers, they could have bought mercenaries. They could have bought the average guy off the street to do their dirty work of planting bombs all over. I mean, these guys have planted a couple bombs in synagogues, they, uh, they murdered three people. Just in one year's time, they robbed three armored cars, a few banks, a few stores, blew up a porno store. I mean, the list goes on and on and on as I, as I discuss about this. Uh, it scared me. So I walked in with no immunity and I said, I want to talk to somebody. And I didn't know what was going to be thrown at me. I could have been sentenced to two, three years, whatever. And I couldn't handle it no more because my nerves were shot. I lost a lot of weight. I was taking Valiums. I mean, I couldn't couldn't handle the stuff I knew was going to happen. And when I went in there, I sat there and I talked to the Secret Service and they told me to hope. They couldn't believe what I knew. And they brought the FBI right in to investigate this and uh, from that day of cooperation there was over 300 fbi agents called in from washington to investigate this group and everything i said they was found out was the truth
3: so martinez leads the fbi to the capri motel in portland oregon where matthews was hiding out with gary yarborough
2: i told the fbi i will lead them to matthews under two conditions that they wouldn't reveal my involvement because i'd be a dead man and that no one would get hurt not even matthews they agreed I led them to Portland, Oregon. Uh, before that, I led them to Gary Yarborough, the man who actually was, had the murder weapon that killed Alan Berg. He got away, he shot it out with the FBI in Idaho and got away, and he ended up at this motel with Matthews. But the thing is, Matthews lied to me. He said he was alone, and he was surveilling this airport out, and he picked up FBI surveillance, which he thought. And as I got in the car, this Yarborough, who I'd never met, got in behind me and put a machine gun on me with a silencer, and they took off in the streets of Portland. And as we did, they pulled hand grenades out and had them on the side of their seats. And they watched if this car would pull out, and it turned out it was an FBI was following us. And uh, they lost the FBI in Portland. It was real bad weather. It was raining like cats and dogs out there, and they took me in this wooded area dead end out in the woods in his car and I'll be honest with you I thought I was a dead man because they murdered one of their own just prior to that and took him in the woods and killed him and buried his body and as I went out there I had no choice but to stay in the car because I thought about jumping out the car but he was driving so fast I had I just had to stay put and uh, they went in the woods and just shut the lights off for this car and waited to see if this car that pulled out of the uh, airport would come down thank God it didn't the FBI lost me So uh, the following day, as we go back to this motel to move the story up a little, there was a gun uh, eruption there, which wasn't planned by the FBI. But Matthews come out of his room towards my room to get me and uh, an FBI agent was shot. The manager of the motel was shot. Yarborough was captured. But Matthews was shot in the hand and, and escaped.
0: Here's Matthews describing the events at the motel in his own words, in a letter he penned right after these events.
5: The incompetence of these gun-toting bureaucrats never ceases to amaze me, especially after their attempted ambush and murder of myself in a Portland motel. First, let me say that the FBI was not there to arrest Gary, but to ambush me. They didn't even know that Gary was in the room. The only reason they were able to find me was because a trusted friend in room 14 was actually a traitor and an informant. The FBI has vast resources and the latest technology, but with the quality of their agents is going downhill with every new recruit. That's because most of the best white men in this country are starting to realize that to be an FBI agent is to be nothing more than a mercenary for the ADL and Tel Aviv. When I stopped out of my motel room that morning, a gang of armed men came running at me. None of the men had uniforms on and the only thing they said was, stop you bastard. At this, I yelled at Gary who was still inside and I leaped down the stairwell and took off running into the parking lot. A woman agent shot at my back and the bullet missed and hit the motel manager. I rounded the corner of the motel and took off down the hill into a residential area. After running for two blocks, I decided to quit being the hunted and become the hunter. I drew my gun and I waited behind a concrete wall for the agents to draw near. When I aimed my gun at the closest agent, I saw the handsome face of a young white man, and I lowered my aim to his knees and foot. Had I not done so, I would have killed both agents and still had the use of my hand, which is now mangled beyond repair and which I might very well lose altogether. That is the last time I will ever give quarter. As for the traitor in room 14, we will eventually find him. If it takes 10 years and we have to travel to the far ends of the earth, We will find him, and true to our oath, when we do find him, we will remove his head from his body.
3: After the incident at the motel in Oregon, Matthews escaped to Whidbey Island, Washington. Whidbey Island is located about 30 miles north of Seattle, at the edge of Puget Sound. The island is a lush, quiet, bucolic place. It's about 37 miles long, and has only about 67,000 residents most of which are rural. There are only two ways on or off the island, a bridge on the north end, or a ferry from the Olympic Peninsula. The island is home to Eby's Landing National Historic Reserve, as well as six state parks.
0: Some of the other members of the order had safe houses located on the island. The house where Matthews was hiding out was very hard to find. Beautiful cliffside,
4: facing west, on a very high cliff looking out over the Puget Sound. But from the road, you almost, it's very easy to miss the little driveway. It's just a little, you know, two-rutted road that wound through the trees and very easy to miss.
3: Although Matthews was holed up in this house on Woodby Island, he wasn't necessarily hiding anymore. By this point, he had decided to force the FBI's hand, according to the last letter
5: he wrote. I am not going into hiding. Rather, I will press the FBI and let them know what it is like to become the hunted. Doing so, it is only logical to assume that my days on this planet are rapidly drawing to a close. Even so, I have no fear, for the reality of my life is death, and the worst the enemy can do to me is shorten my tour of duty in this world. I will leave knowing that I have made the ultimate sacrifice to ensure the future of my children. As always, for blood, soil, honor, for faith, and for race.
0: Matthews knew that his dream of a white American bastion was over. He did not get the groundswell of support he was expecting to see after killing Berg. Quite the opposite, in fact. Most of the groups he had given seed money to didn't spend it on their own terroristic acts. Mostly, they just kept it, or spent it on the mortgage. And so Matthews came to believe that the only way he could continue to be effective to the cause he had begun was to become a martyr.
3: The FBI received an anonymous tip that Matthews was on Whidbey Island. At dawn on December 7th, 1984, agents approached the house. They had a total of five SWAT teams and 52 agents surrounding the houses Matthews and his gang were hiding in. Over the course of the day, the agents stormed three houses and arrested several members of the order. The agents identified which house Matthews was hiding out in, but the house had no phone and Matthews wouldn't respond to the bullhorn. Eventually, they were able to get a field phone into Matthews and got him on the line. Matthews told them his terms of surrender. He wanted parts of eastern Washington, Idaho, and Montana set aside as an Aryan homeland, where he and his group could be free to live as they chose.
0: The FBI tried to negotiate with Matthews throughout the night, but had no luck drawing Matthews out. At one point, they heard a gunshot inside the house, followed by a moan, and thought Matthews might have killed himself. On the morning of December 8th, the agents fired tear gas into the window of the house, assuming that if Matthews was alive, it would push him out. By midday, they had used a total of six canisters of tear gas, but had not seen any movement inside the house. And they decided to send two uh, FBI entry teams
4: into the into the house. And as soon as they did, they discovered it was he was just... Playing, playing possum. Uh, when that first team entered the house, he he was up on the second floor and he started firing a full-auto uh, machine gun through the floor, bullets coming through the ceiling. How these FBI agents left that first floor without a scratch—they they just amazing because it was coming like uh, Bob was doing a zigzag pattern, like a Z down, you know, down through the floors, just doing Z's. To try to do, you know, try to catch people in a crossfire.
0: At 6 p.m., helicopters drop flares onto the house. So they ended up firing a uh,
4: phosphorus flare into the house. You know, you don't fire phosphorus into a structure, and without an expectation that it'll set fire to it. It set. A, if you saw the photos in the book, it set a tremendous fire, and the entire building was turned to ashes. And they found, his, uh, they found Bob Matthews' uh, burned corpse, uh, hardly recognizable, in a bathtub where he had sought refuge. And the little gold medallion, the, B- the Bruder Schwagen medallion, had melted into his chest cavity. And that was the end of him.
0: Matthews had been killed by the FBI just the way he wanted.
3: Although some members tried to keep the Silent Brotherhood going, Matthew's death really spelled the end of the group. After the shootout in Washington, the FBI started arresting members of the order. Gary Yarborough was arrested during the Capri Motel raid, just before the events on Whidbey Island. It was in his house that the MAC-10 used to kill Berg was found. David Lane was arrested a few months later, on March 30, 1985, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. On counterfeiting charges. Bruce Pierce was arrested earlier that same week in Georgia. Both were named as suspects in the Allenberg murder.
0: On April 15, 1985, after a 15-month federal investigation, a federal grand jury issued a 21-count racketeering and conspiracy indictment against 23 members of the Silent Brotherhood. The gang was accused of three armored car robberies, two murders, counterfeitings, bombings, arsons, bank robberies, and other crimes.
3: The members of the order were charged under the RICO Act. The RICO Act is the Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act. It was passed in 1970 and allows for the leader of an organization to be tried for crimes they ordered others to do. While its original use in the 1970s was to prosecute the mafia, as well as others who were actively engaged in organized crime, its later application has become more widespread. 12 of the members charged pleaded guilty. 10 went on trial for racketeering and conspiracy in federal court in Seattle, Washington, including Bruce Pierce, David Lane, and Gene Craig.
0: The trial began in September 1985 and lasted 14 weeks. The way racketeering charges work, a defendant needs to be found guilty of at least two of the individual crimes they are accused of in order to be convicted of racketeering. The jury deliberated for just six and a half days. All 10 were found guilty of racketeering and conspiracy. Federal racketeering counts carry penalties of up to 40 years in prison, which is what most of the members received. However, under federal guidelines, they would all be eligible for parole after 10 years.
3: Denver District Attorney Norman Early waited until the federal trial was over to decide whether to pursue murder charges for those accused of being involved in the Allenburg killing. Early wanted to interview jurors from the federal case before making a decision. On May 1, 1986, four months after the federal racketeering trial concluded. Early announced that even though he was convinced that they had killed the radio host, he was not pursuing murder charges against the four suspects.
0: Early told the Rocky Mountain News, we have investigated all leads and we don't believe we have sufficient evidence to prosecute a case. Two days later, the Rocky Mountain News reported that federal authorities were upset that Early had decided not to charge anyone with the murder of Allen Berg. Bob Ward, one of the federal prosecutors in the Seattle case, told the paper, The guy was murdered because he was Jewish and because he exercised his freedom of speech. They assassinated him with a machine gun for those reasons. With all the evidence that has been uncovered by the Denver Police Department and the FBI, I just can't understand how a prosecutor could simply turn his back on that evidence. Even
3: the foreman of the Seattle jury, Molly Ball, spoke out about the situation, saying that the evidence she heard was sufficient to prove Berg murder charges. Presented with the same evidence we saw here, there is no doubt we would convict for murder, Ball told the Rocky Mountain News. We all urged them to press the murder charges. The reason we agreed to meet with the Denver prosecutors was because we all more or less wanted to do what we could to help them press charges. Federal prosecutors were particularly concerned that with just the racketeering charges, many members of the order could apply for parole in 10 years. I doubt any of them are going to serve the rest of their lives in prison, Bob Miller, the U.S. attorney in Denver, told the paper. They're going to eventually be out of prison unless something else happens.
4: In Seattle, in the racketeering trial, the assassination of Allen Berg is referenced as one of the predicate acts, one of the criminal acts that constitutes the racketeering, racketeer-influenced corrupt organizations prosecution that they were doing called RICO, and so the murder of Berg was a predicate act. So being convicted of racketeering and conspiracy did not convict you of murdering Alan Berg. That was left to the local prosecutors here in Denver. It's pretty well known here in Denver, the district attorney at the time, Norm Early, decided not to uh, prosecute for several reasons. Um, the evidence placing them here was, was although it was sufficient to to serve as a predicate act in the RICO trial in Seattle. A state prosecution wasn't a sure uh, conviction. And because there was also the possibility of doing a federal prosecution in Denver, in federal court in Denver for violating Allenberg's civil rights, uh, I think D.A. Early thought that that would be the better way to go. The, The last thing that anybody in Denver would have wanted would be to hold a state murder trial and not get a conviction, particularly not get the death penalty for such a high-profile crime. And I think there was doubts about the strength of the evidence to achieve uh, conviction and death penalty when you had this backstop of the federal prosecution. Uh,
0: Norm took a lot of criticism for that. We reached out to Norm early several times, but he declined to respond. Since Early refused to charge Lane, Pierce, Scutari, and Craig with Allenberg's murder, federal prosecutors in Denver decided to charge the four with violating the civil rights of Allenberg, effectively for committing a hate crime, since they could not be charged with murder at the federal level. That trial started in October 1987.
3: A month later, on November 17th, Pierce and Lane were convicted of violating Allenberg's civil rights by killing him, while Craig and Scutari were acquitted. Pierce, the trigger man, and Lane, the getaway driver, were sentenced to 150 years in prison, in addition to their previous racketeering sentences, ensuring that neither would ever get out of prison.
0: However, the federal authorities weren't quite done with the order. In 1988, several members of the order were charged with sedition, including Pierce, Lane, and Scutari, but none of them were convicted for attempting to overthrow the government. Pulling off a criminal conspiracy is really hard to do. The Mafia was successful at it while they were being ignored, but once the spotlight hit them, in a lot of cases, things came to an end. And this is no different. The idea that a group can commit a series of crimes across the United States and expect no attention from it seems ridiculous on the face of it, and of course it was. Eventually, mistakes are made, someone gets caught, someone talks, and the whole thing comes crashing down. Attempting the type of criminal conspiracy that would lead to the violent annexation and ethnic cleansing of the Pacific Northwest is, well, it's impossible, really. And we can take some comfort in that.
3: So Bob Matthews was killed in a standoff with the FBI, and most of the other members of the Silent Brotherhood were in prison for racketeering charges. And two of the four accused of killing Ellen Berg, while not charged with murder, would be in prison for the rest of their lives, effectively putting an end to the order. But the story of the Silent Brotherhood doesn't really end there.
0: Next time on The Order of Death, how Robert Matthew's legacy and the ideology of the order is still influencing white supremacists today. The Order of Death is produced by Josh Madison and Shannon Geis and is edited by Josh Madison. Our theme song is by Matthew Simonson. We had additional music this episode from Kevin Richards and Blue Dot Sessions. Also, very special thanks to our voice actor, Jonathan Brown, for standing in for Robert Matthews. Shannon and I will be at an event at the History Colorado Center, along with Lost Highways producers Noel Black and Tyler Hill on October 22nd. We'll have a link to that and to everything else in the show notes. Hope to see you there. And we're doing a little bit more reporting around episode four. So that's actually going to be delayed by about a week or so, but it is on the way.